Cardinal George Pell, welcome to the herd mentality. Finally, I've asked you... A, a number of times. Now let's get your credentials in order. You are Australia's highest ranked Catholic amid a storm of sexual abuse lawsuits and you've accepted the third highest role in the Vatican. Yes. It's a good time to not be in Australia, yeah? I was distressed. Well, that makes it okay then. Now, I think you'll agree that child abuse is a very, very serious topic and not to be made fun of. Certainly. But you're here today because you yourself are a victim, am I correct? Yes. Well, this podcast is a safe place for that. I understand it all centres around Ray Comfort and one of his so-called orgies. With, uh, there were four priests uh, there. Well, let's not name names apart from Ray. You assert that you were tricked into partaking in one. I had no idea at all. So in the summer of 2012, whilst touring Living Waters, Ray Comfort made you feel comfortable? I've got on fairly well with him. Ah, so he disarmed you. Did he ply you with alcohol? Some time to come to grips. And then... And he did some dreadful evil things. So Cardinal Pell, would you describe Ray as the ringleader? He survived in that role for years and years. He's a clever fellow. Then why wait so long to speak up about it? Uh, there is a, a, a requirement that they don't talk about it. Most of them are happy not to. Hmm. The event itself, you're claiming that Ray was planning for months to surprise you with an unlubricated eight-horsepower solid gold butt plug. Nobody around there knew that. Nobody even hinted it to me. So once you were naked, I must ask... How did you compare to Ray? Moderately. Now, you were forced for almost 20 minutes to ride the device. Quite prepared to concede that I would have been rattled. But you actually weren't angry about it. Never. Never. In fact, I have a signed affidavit here from Ray to say that you tried to bribe him for the device. I offered them 50 grand in uh, compensation. Do you even realise the awesome potential of this machine? Are you aware of what happened to Joel Osteen? With great sympathy towards him and, and uh, his family, and what happened to him was uh, dreadful. So I'm at a loss as to what the issue is here, Cardinal Pell. I don't want to... Uh, uh, pretend that uh, those things were always handled well, but that wasn't my bad. Then Ray's orgy, would you be enthusiastic about round two? No, I certainly would never have said that, and I didn't say that. Oh? I thought you were talking about back in the 70s. Cardinal George Pell, thanks for your time. Many of them don't want uh, to be subjected to publicity, and of course it's shameful for the church. Welcome to The Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic and humanistic conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, get an interesting conversation for you to listen to. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, at Adam Reeks on Twitter, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Herd Mentality, and down the line with me from sunny Englandshire... We have at Son of Man Play. Alex, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Your whereabouts are you based? I'm in London at the moment, but I'm originally from Cardiff. Right. Did I lie when I said it was sunny? Uh, actually, it is really sunny today. Ah. You've caught, caught us on a very good day. I called you on the one of the two days a year that <laughs> <laughs> the sun shines. Right, yeah. so Alex, you're a playwright. That's correct, yes. Sort and of. I mean, this is the first play I've written, right. so uh, I'm not sure whether I'm sort of calling myself a playwright yet or not, but... The play is called Son of Man. That's right, yes. Talk me through it. Okay, so basically it's about the lost years of Jesus and where he got the idea that he was the son of a god. It sort of explores the theme that one of his formative influences would have been the fact that he was an illegitimate child and 
ostracized from the rest of his community because of that. And that pushed him in a certain direction of believing that he was, you know, sort of divinely blessed or divinely chosen. So it plays a kind of like an exploration of ancient theology in terms of how it could have made someone think that they were the son of a god, which a lot of people did claim at that time. They still do. Oh, yeah, indeed, yeah. <laughs> um, we seem to so, place far less stock in the modern day claims that people are the son of God than perhaps the poorly documented claims of the past. And it's sort of interesting that you say it's like the son of God as well, because Christians will often say to you, do you believe Jesus is the son of God, as if that position is already vacant, as if uh, the son of God already exists. And so what the play explores is the fact that this idea of a the son of God did actually exist in ancient Jewish thought before Christianity. And that may well have been where Jesus got the idea for taking that title for himself. Mm. It's kind of serious on one level, like half of it is quite deep, deep tragedy. But then the other half is kind of like quite lighthearted comedy, because if you look at it in the right way, theology is really funny. It's just ridiculous on so many levels. It's actually quite amusing if you learn to interpret it in, well, I suppose in the correct way, which is from the perspective of, the, of ancient peoples. So hopefully what gives the play some life is it's sort of 50-50. It's like 50 percent comedy, 50 percent tragedy. So it's not Life of Brian style laugh a minute material there's yeah there are moments that are a little bit life of brian i'm happy to have in there there's definitely two big life of brian-esque characters who are sort of go against the grain of what everybody else is saying about religion um but then uh the rest of it is very very painful very very shocking it's a kind of um it's a it's a play of two extremes and are the uh, audience ultimately rooting for jesus here this is a good question to be honest because it comes down to who the protagonist is in the play and it's kind of an i don't want to sound too pretentious here hopefully it's a bit like an epic theater play in which there are more than one protagonist while you do feel for jesus in some ways and some other ways you don't feel for him i'm not sure whether what what to give away by the end of it i think you're not supposed to feel for jesus but certainly at the beginning you are is there any evidence of god does he make an appearance at all this is a good question because when i've shown it to people and when i showed it for my dad for instance he said well does god exist in this play and i was like well hopefully that's in the mind of the audience but as the play's taken shape I prefer to look at it as a, as a play in which God does definitely not exist. He doesn't um, say anything on a, in a deep voice. On he just is in there in the minds of all the characters. But each of the characters has got like this completely different idea of what God is. Nothing. So the changes. audience is hopefully um, <laughs> as confused as everybody else is about religion. Well, yes, a valid point to be sure. Where would people be able to go to find out? A little more about your project. There are two places on the internet at the moment. That's um, the Twitter account and the Facebook group. The Twitter account, if you search Son of Man Play, all one word. And then there's the Facebook group as well, which which gets a new name every few days. But I'm going to have to stick with one soon. So this is it for the moment. It's called Son of Man a new Jesus play for atheists, uh, just a, a Facebook group. So if you search Facebook groups, you'll be able to get that. Fantastic. My understanding is, although it's not done yet, and we can look forward to it in June, you're planning to run a Kickstarter campaign to fund this. That's right, yes. It's either a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo campaign, and just basically going to appeal to the atheists and agnostics of the world to get the play underway. 
I suppose one of the big reasons for doing it is because we want to uh, like reclaim religious narratives from the religious as a product of our shared culture and show that there could be atheist interpretations of all these tales and that there should be atheist interpretations of these tales in the future. Very well. Well, Alex, thank you very much for coming on The Herd Mentality. Brilliant. Thanks for having me so much. Joining me now for a little bit of a science update, we've got Dr. Dave Hawkes. Dave, welcome. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me on again. It's been a while. Yeah, it's, it's got to be a couple of weeks. I, <laughs> I was not feeling the love. You, you're spending it all on that uh, that brilliant cow you've got. Yes, the cow, the cow. Well, if this goes to, I think this will go to air before the end of the auction. It's still available to bid upon. It's currently at $100. Someone's going to get a bargain out of this cow. So $100. By the time eBay have taken their pound of flesh, then PayPal have taken their pound of flesh, Iman might get uh, $12.50 for a holiday. So she's off to Tasmania. I think I speak on behalf of people of all genders. We've all gone to bars and ended up with a cow and it's normally cost way more than $100. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk... uh... (laughs) <laughs> Let's talk Which about... Which leads us nicely onto our topic. Yes. So, HPV, Dave, what's the latest? Well, as most people know, particularly those that follow me on Twitter, I, I'm obviously a passionate campaigner for, for vaccination, but my particular area of interest I've fallen into is the HPV vaccine, which back in episode five, I think, was the first time you had me on. And I do try and keep up to date. And I guess the sort of two topics that have been a bit relevant uh, recently, because I'll start with the first, is that HPV interacts with religion more than pretty much any other vaccine and the reason is it's obviously it's a, it's a vaccine for sexually transmitted disease and the other thing is it's given you know from the age of nine up to 13 depending on the country because the idea is that if you can actually give the vaccine before someone is exposed to HPV then it works really 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 well in clinical trials it was 99 to 100 percent effective it might not be obviously that effective in the population but the preliminary data shows it's incredibly effective and essentially if you don't have HPV you don't get cervical cancer. It also affects, obviously, other cancers like mouth, anus, penis, a few others. So that's why it's given before you have sex. And it's also why there's a lot of uh, religious overtones with this vaccine. And this has sort of come up with Malaysia, of all places. They've got a consumer network um, that's come up, said, you know, we shouldn't be spending a 150 million ringgit, one of my favorite currencies in the world. Uh, <laughs> it's up there with the, uh, the Tajikistanian pebble. Yeah, I, I've always argued that we should, if we're going to redo our currency, we should call it the bargain because <laughs> everyone loves a bargain. You know, that's just for three bargains. I'm going, awesome. That's it. It's um, the preferred currency of Turkish rugs, isn't it? Everything's 70% off, so you can pick them up for, I don't know, 20, 20 bargains. Redo your living room. Yeah. Having travelled Turkey with my wife and her sister, I know that the uh, the bargain is the main currency, then the cup of tea is the sub-currency. Right. Um, so you get it for a bargain and three cups of tea. Anyway, back to the topic. Back to the so topic. they've come out and they've sort of said that the HPV vaccine targets, either vaccine targets two major cancer-corning strains, which are 16 and 18. Essentially, these guys have said that they've got everything wrong. Now, that's pretty hard to do, but they've, they're saying that it, there's 200 HPV types. Generally, it's accepted there's over 100, exactly how many are unknown. They also say that 40 are oncogenic, so cancer-causing, whereas actually only 15 are considered high risk for cancer. They also say that the vaccines are irrelevant because they only 
only protect against two to four out of these 40 HPV types. And it's like, well, they protect against two of 15, but those two strains alone make up 70% of cancers. And so they show this figure from a 2009 article which looked at 38 Malaysian women. Mm. So it's small and it's old. It's like the Yoda of... (laughs) (laughs) papers, but just not as wise. And so they show that only 23% had this type 16 and 5% had time 18. And I was kind of going, well, that's a small study. Are there any other studies? And I looked up and guess what? This year, a study of, I think it's over 700 Malaysian women looked at the cancer, the HPV types associated with cancer. And guess what? 68% are associated with HPV 16 and about 40% associated with HPV 18. Now, for those of you who are doing maths, you'll work out that's more than 100%, but that's because cancer strains can often often have a number of different types. So their argument, I suspect, is based on religion. I've actually mm-hmm. spoken to a, a Malaysian politician and I've handed on some information about why this is incorrect and they're actually going to try and address it. But they've suggested that for political slash religious reasons, it's actually very, very hard to debate this in, in the real world. And that leads me on to my second question, if, if you don't have any, any other issues with that, Adam. I'm cool, but there was one thing I did want to just quiz you on. HPV is not just transmissible as an STD, is it? No. It depends whether you mean STD in the traditional missionary position or STD in the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky transmission. Well, let's take option B. Okay, so that is a wonderful segue. I'm I'm giving you (laughs) mad kudos for that segue because essentially... HPV, as I said earlier, can lead to penis, vagina, vulval, anal, mouth cancer. So essentially, you're kind of going, all right, well, what's the common denominator? And it's essentially any wet spot you can have fun with someone else. And in fact, we know it's sexually transmitted, obviously, through through vaginal sex or through anal sex. But what's even more interesting is that the sexual partners of women that have cervical cancer actually have a higher rate of HPV or, or in fact, oral uh, infections linked to that cancer. So if there's oral sex with someone that has a HPV type that in fact leads to cancer, you're more likely to get it from oral sex. So the short thing is if your partner has gets cervical cancer, you've got a much increased risk of getting oropharynx, so part of the throat cancer. So you can get it through oral sex. When you're talking about these religious groups that argue that my daughter won't have sex, it's like, well, there's that whole oral is moral thing that is is often used by by teenagers in certain parts of religious America because it's technically not sex, but you still are at high risk of HPV. But this is why it's important for males to be vaccinated as well. Absolutely. um, Anyone can catch HPV. It, It started off as looking at at women because cervical cancer is generally considered if you don't have HPV, you don't get cervical cancer. It's pretty much universally acknowledged. There's there's some where they don't find a HPV, but as our, our technologies get better at actually analysing different strains, that number is shrinking rapidly. So this was a cancer that was pretty much exclusively caused by HPV. That was the, that was why I was the first target. And because 70% of it is just two strains. So that's why it made such an ideal target. But obviously it worked. It worked really well. The vaccine was developed and they extended it to men because men still have mouths and anuses like women, but they also have penises and penises can get cancer. And it's no good for anyone to have cancer of the penis. Damn straight it's not. Then the other point, and this is a little bit more contentious and I certainly wouldn't wouldn't take this as, as gospel if you f- forgive the choice of words, <laughs> is that HPV, there's some argument that can actually be transmitted through open-mouth French kissing. So we're not clear, but there is a small number of 
HPV positive people who have never had sex. So no oral sex, no anal, no vaginal, but have HPV. I think it's less than 1%. And this is the follow-up and it's always difficult because sometimes people lie, but it's certainly open that, you know, you might think you're doing the best because you believe that giving the, the vaccine might encourage your daughter or son to be more promiscuous. But in fact, if they kiss someone, they can actually run the risk of getting HPV and, and then mouth cancer. Is it possible, Dave, that it's transmitted from the mother to the child at birth? It's probably not. There doesn't seem to be any indication of that because what happens with HPV is that HPV takes about 10 to 20 years to end up as cancer. So if you were getting a transmission at birth or even in that sort of first year of life, you'd expect cancers to be occurring where essentially when they're children, so 10 to 20 years, whereas cervical cancers tend to happen later and they tend to happen 10 or 20 years after sort of when you're in your, your sexual peak. So sort of that 18 to 25 when you're sexually active with probably you know, if, if you have more than one partner, it's, it's more likely to be in that 18 to 25. And so people get cervical cancer in their sort of 40s and, and 50s. So there may be, may be transmission, but if it is, it's a very, very small percentage. Then how would we test that? How would we test whether people have HPV? Yeah. I mean, as a child, wouldn't it make sense to do a study to try and detect whether the children after birth have one of those 100 to 200 strains of HPV? It's possible. But again, you've got to look at this 100 to 200 strains of HPV. So most of them don't do anything. There's no no effect of having a strain. So there's a couple that cause genital warts, but when we give the vaccine to teenagers, genital warts in Australia has dropped by 90% since the vaccine has come along. So if this was something that people were getting as kids, you'd see genital warts appearing in children, but we don't. And again, cervical cancer. So the, the epidemiological data doesn't support that there's actually a what they call a vertical transmission, so from mother to child, of HPV. The most well-known vertical transmission of, of a virus particularly is hepatitis B. And we can map that and we know that it happens, but that happens through blood, not through sexual contact or anything. I would have thought kissing. HIV so, was up there as well. Yeah, HIV is actually a really interesting one because if a woman's HIV positive has a baby and you give them a, a dose of a drug called nevirapine at the time of birth, it reduces the transmission by, I think it's 80%, 80 or 90%. The other thing is if you have HIV, you can still breastfeed your baby. Mm-hmm. Because breast milk's very light, it's not particularly toxic, and, and babies have it in their, their gut, and the gut kills HIV. And you can bottle feed a baby, obviously. But if you breast and bottle feed, the bottle food is a little bit rougher on the gut, and so you can end up with micro incisions. Then you combine the breast milk, which may contain HIV, and that's where you can actually get transmission. So HIV is certainly a transmissible disease, but we have a lot of ways of actually reducing the transmission to essentially, you know, statistically negligent amounts. It was certainly in a first world country and even in third world countries. But, but not hepatitis B? No, not hepatitis B because blood in the birth canal, there's, there's no great drugs for hepatitis B. There's no, there's no great drugs for any hepatitis. That's why the vaccines are so important. And HPV, again, there's no real treatment for HPV. There's nothing that really works particularly well, but the vaccine works really well. And so you can have a vaccine. We've tried treatments for a long time, but the vaccine actually sort of neglects the need for a treatment. Mm. Um, whereas HIV, it's not quite as simple. Got one more thing. Lay it on me. Okay, so I've, I've sort of mentioned it a couple of times, but there is this, particularly in 
uh, let's say southern US groups that that say that they worried about giving the HPV vaccine to their girls on the grounds that I believe and I'm paraphrasing Ra as they will be frothing at the gash. Mm, I think sounds like something she'd say. Yeah, it's um it's a technical term. Mm-hmm. Um, you may be lost without that medical experience you've got, Adam, but you know, you, you get the idea. <laughs> There's actually been some papers that have looked at whether or not when you give someone the vaccine, whether they become more promiscuous. So there was a paper in the Journal of School Nursing uh, that looked at several hundred college women, number of lifetime sexual partners, partners in the last 12 months, condom uses, and they found that being vaccinated didn't change how many people a woman slept with or whether she used condoms. So that's whether she gets the vaccine doesn't seem to change anything. Another study, I looked at over 200 women with an average age of about 20. So as again, this is in this sort of peak sexual period and asked them about their sexual behaviours. They found that the the HPV vaccination didn't change the age at which they lost their virginity or whether they were involved in high-risk sexual practices. Now, I had to look it up. A high-risk sexual practice is not having sex on a trapeze. Ah. It's not having sex on top of a moving train. it's things such as anal sex is considered a high or, or even penetrative sex is considered a high risk sexual practice. Right. But what it did find was that young women are highly likely to be exposed to HPV. But if they're vaccinated, they can obviously prevent infection. So the vaccine works really well. We've gone through its safety stuff before and it doesn't actually change sexual practices. But by not getting the vaccine, your child will be more exposed to it. And even kissing could result in a virus. And admittedly, it is a small percent may involve mouth cancer. And that's not good. And it's a really easy, like there's a lot of diseases we can't fight off and we don't know enough about. So to be able to rule out a number of what sound like incredibly painful and life-altering cancers with, you know, three needles. Seems a bit of a no-brainer. But I must ask, when they did this study, how did they overcome the potential for the participants to manipulate their answers and perhaps lie? It's one of those things, I, I teach med students and I've asked it a couple of times, it's like when you've got a patient and you ask them and, and we deal with sexual diseases and, and sorts of things and you get you have to get the patient on their own and you ask them and I said, surely people lie through their ass. It's just, you know, no, I didn't get drunk, no, I'm, I'm a man but I've never had sex with men, all those sorts of things which are a bit socially taboo. And all these experienced doctors who follow patients for years said overwhelmingly, when it's sort of anonymous, when it's just you and the doctor, people tell the truth. I think it's close to a thousand women with these two studies. And you look at the number of partners and if they're going to lie, they're probably going to lie consistently. And so you're still not seeing a difference between vaccination and non-vaccination. So all you can do with these studies is look at large numbers and look at different cohorts. So you've got college women versus women that are an average age of 20 years. They're not necessarily in college. And you can just look at whether this stuff is reproducible and reproducible in different contexts. If you did all your studies at, say, the University of Melbourne at the student population, then while it might give you a good idea, it's it's not going to be very robust. If you did it at students at the University of Melbourne, you did it at 20-year-old factory workers in Bangalore, you looked at cheerleaders in Texas, and you found the same thing, then that sort of helps with that cultural and sort of you know those social constructs which you're talking about which may prevent people from being honest but again strangely enough when they're one-on-one with the doctor most people are apparently incredibly honest which is fantastic i was a bit stunned 
there's always something new happening in the world of HPV. It's um, it's such a hot button topic. There's also a campaign for the UK. So any of you UK listeners, if you look up at uh, Dr. Christian on Twitter, he's promoting a petition which is trying to get the UK government to actually subsidise the HPV vaccination for boys, which thankfully in Australia was introduced last year, but is currently it's a 360 pounds in the UK to get a boy vaccinated. But they're trying to get it uh, on the national health so that boys can be vaccinated at no cost to their parents. Mm. How do you think that'll go with the Christian Prime Minister? I think it will be fine. I think that most, I mean, you're looking at David Cameron, I think he supported gay marriage. So he, he seems to have at least a live and let live attitude. And I think that they've, they've already got the HPV vaccination subsidised for women. And I think that subsidising it for men is, is a no-brainer because I'd like to hope that the UK is a bit like Australia and that we don't have that quite as as bad, this sort of misogynistic approach to, to gender and sex. It's like women and men sexually, incredibly similar urges, in incredibly similar practices. Let's just try and protect everybody because women will have sex before marriage. Most of the time, so will men. And as much as I'm a big component of condom use, people don't always use them. So let's just try and give our kids as much protection as we can. Very well. Well, Dave, thank you for coming on and giving us an update. Guys, go and vaccinate your boys and girls. And here's hoping for a cleaner, less cancer-prone future for everybody. Excellent. Thanks again, Adam. Thanks, Dave. And down the line with me, I have somebody who is a little bit Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, in that he has two Twitter handles. We've got at Iron Atheist. Hello. Hello there. And where are you from? I'm from Toronto, Canada. Fantastic. You've got a second Twitter account as well. Yeah, uh, the Bible Journal or at Bible Journal. At Bible Journal, but that's at B-U-Y-B-U-L-L Journal. Yeah, I do that... Uh... You know, I do. I write a lot of articles, and uh, that's where I post them. Uh, Iron Atheist—that's more of my uh, conversational, confrontational uh, account. But uh, well, lately I have it shut off because uh, I just—I'm just too busy. Tell me. Love your show, by the way. Oh, thank you. So, tell me a little more about uh, your past. I understand you were a priest or a pastor in in a past life. <laughs> well, if if you want to call it that, you know, that was like 30 years ago. I was quite fanatical from a fanatical family. Uh, I became atheist at 14, and uh, well, sorry, that's that's not true. I became agnostic at 14, and then uh, when 911 happened, all I knew was I don't know what. At some point, I'd become an atheist. I understand. And yeah. And then you jumped onto Twitter. Yeah, I came onto Twitter uh, four years ago. Uh, I'm a UFC fanatic, and also a Howard Stern fanatic. And then uh, one day, I followed an atheist. Ended up following another atheist, and then I followed a lot of atheists. And then I started talking <laughs> to religious people, and and just seeing some of the conversations, like uh, Mr. Oz, atheist, and uh, you know, Godless spell checker. I mean, I was talking to people, you know, promoting atheism and telling the religion was bullshit. But the thing is, I was very bad at it when I first came on. I was quite stupid. I was involved in this show called uh, Ancient Aliens. And and for some reason, I just thought it was like the greatest show ever. And why would they lie? Well, this is the point, isn't it? I mean, atheism and skepticism aren't necessarily yeah. hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, atheism isn't a belief. Like, all I knew was all religion was bullshit, but it just, it's it's it was one form of bullshit or the other bullshit well all bullshit but that was what i thought was just religion with bullshit oh but but i thought ancient aliens was kind of like the backing for all religion really 
But then one girl told me on Twitter, uh, one day she was a historian and archaeologist, and she said, buddy, you're just being so stupid. You're being an idiot. And it's like, well, what do you mean? Why would they lie on the History Channel? <laughs> and, uh, well, she told me why. If, if you ever watch, there's this three-hour documentary called Ancient Aliens Debunked. Yeah, they do a pretty thorough job. But uh, at that point, then, you know, I actually went back to researching and... Uh, it would have been perhaps the catalyst for then demanding evidence for a claim. Oh, exactly. I ended up spending like 15 hours a day to 18 hours on Twitter, you know, because I had a job at the time where, uh, you know, I would literally do nothing and I'd just be on Twitter. It's like, wow, I just became entranced into talking to these crazy people. <laughs> and they're crazy to me. I, I don't know. Well, that segues it's, quite nicely into brainwashing. So what have you got for us? What is what is brainwashing? Well, I, I've written several articles on my uh, blog about brainwashing. It's basically, you know, believing things without evidence and, uh, you know, thinking they're real. Jesus died for our sins. You know, how did Jesus die for our sins? You know, that, that's crazy. That's like, that's like saying... That I played Grand Theft Auto for Rob Ford's crack habit. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense. There's nothing that makes any sense in any religion ever. Mm. And the only way that you can believe it is if you're brainwashed. Is brainwashing the sort of thing that can take place at any point in somebody's life? Well, there's child indoctrination, right? When you get older, it's basically getting caught in a moment of vulnerability. There's a few different ways, but, uh, you know, the cults are one thing. Like, all religions started out as cults. Was there one other point you wanted to touch upon quickly? Well, I do have a book here I'm reading currently. Uh, it's called God Doesn't. I have nothing to do with this person. The person doesn't even follow me on Twitter. It's a very good book, and I'm really enjoying it. I've been reading it for like two months now. Uh, it's called God Doesn't We Do. Who's the author? Um, uh, James Lindsay is the author. James A. Lindsay. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with somebody who believes in God. It's when the whole religion comes in that uh, drives me crazy, you know? Mm -hmm. Like Scientology, you know? Okay, for example, if someone just believes in UFOs, do you really care, Adam? Who cares, well, right? no. <laughs> <laughs> when people believe in UFOs and it becomes a religion like Scientology, then it becomes an issue. I don't really have a, a problem with deism unless it's like Deepak Chopra and scamming people and stuff like that. It seems to be a system designed to annihilate one's critical thinking capabilities. Yeah. I wrote an article on my blog. If you look it up, uh, if the whole world were deists, and I show, who cares? It's, um, it's religion with all its silly customs. It's what's poisoning the world. Like, I'd rather not be able to do this anymore you know but i kind of can't get off twitter i kind of can't stop speaking out against it mm. i'm kind of hoping this interview goes really bad actually it's kind of that uh if it's gone really really badly I, I would be so embarrassed i'd never come on twitter again but uh <laughs> i don't know i think most of the people who have been on the show are still out there fighting the good fight <laughs> now i think well, there's plenty of ammunition the playing field still exists. Religion isn't yeah. really going away overnight. Religion will have to phase out over time for us to get along on a small planet with finite resources and stop blowing each other up and making parts of the planet uninhabitable, depriving the world of what few resources we still have. This sort of thing takes cooperation and planning and structure. That's something that competing ideologies can't offer us as a species. Plus, we need science. It's just exactly what Bill Nye said. We need science. We need engineers. We need people, you know, who believe in science and want to believe in science. We don't need people who want to grow up being priests and discouraging science, you know? In our lifetimes, here's hoping. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what I'm pushing for anyway. that's I'd rather 
not do this anymore. <laughs> Somebody has to reason with people. While it looks on the face of it that people speaking out against religion is, is a bit of a waste of time, what it's actually doing is priming the next generation to be even more productive because they won't exactly. be burdened by the belief systems that were imposed upon them by their parents. Right, exactly. And uh, this is what's been irking me. There's these philosophers on uh, Twitter. I call them enablers. Religions need to be told that they're brainwashed. You know, like an alcoholic needs to be told they're an alcoholic. Like if they have a serious drinking problem, otherwise they're in denial, you know. And if atheists don't tell religions they have a problem, they're being enablers. The same as if you said an alcoholic was a functioning alcoholic or someone who just enjoys a few drinks. I compare like these philosopher atheists, you know, who are saying not to attack religion because I'm seeing that all the time, you know. And, and they're giving these religious idiots, you know, credibility. And it just drives me nuts. I compare them to the Jews in Germany in like the early 1930s, telling other Jews to leave Hitler alone, as if the Jews were saying, these Nazis are pretty smart guys, you know, why don't you just give them a listen to and you might learn something. They can't be encouraging this insanity and in behavior. But I fall into that category. Uh-oh. I would categorize myself, in the way you defined it, I would categorize myself as one of the enablers. Having said that, I think it takes all types. See, Richard Dawkins has no issue telling people that they're wrong. You no. have no issue telling people they're wrong. No. I target those people who perhaps don't respond to that in a different way yeah. and saying, well, okay, how can I know that you're right? And by rephrasing the question getting people to think about it. Not everybody's the same way, but it does take all types to make this a successful fight. Yeah, but and I see a lot of people taking certain religious people on Twitter and elevating them and giving them a lot of credibility to other people. Yeah, it drives me nuts. <laughs> very well, at Iron Atheist and at Bible Journal. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Okay, all the best. Take care, man. Hello, Herd Mentalists. It's Questionable Adam here from the year 2074, and I'm using the time-space continuum to contact you with Iran's energy-efficient time machine. The world is a different place now. In this alternate timeline, I'm currently on the run from the FBI for providing a crime they call education to the public via a podcast. And Emperor Pat Robertson, who still isn't dead yet, has a price on my head. The logs show that in the last 60 years, the show has almost generated enough income for me to buy a new identity and smuggle myself into Saudi Arabia, which is now a haven for atheists, secularists and scientists. It's an expensive and risky move and one I must make soon, as this time-space cosmic phone line has been tapped by the NSA. But you can help! Spread news of the show to your friends using social media and write a terrible review for The Herd Mentality on iTunes or Stitcher. There are benefits to supporting the show. For example, $5 monthly donors receive a silly hand-drawn cow posted out to them. And supporting the show also helps promote worthy causes such as raising funds for sexual assault survivors, supporting those who choose to leave their religion, and least importantly making Ray Comfort say silly things. And if sharks came from tadpoles, why are there still goldfish? You can support the show for a few dollars a month by clicking the support tab at herdmentalitypodcast.com. 10% of the proceeds from the show go to kiva.org to help women in developing countries to further their education. It is an enormously time-consuming process, but with a few dollars a month, 
you can be a part of something that contributes to a progressive world and maybe even feel good about it in the process. Incoming transmission. Now they've triangulated my position and dispatched assassins. I must move to the next safe house. Enjoy the show. I'll contact you soon.